hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.
house. You heard it. You'd rather die than vaccinate. I wanted to play that uh, mainly for the lyrics. My wife and I actually review the music suggestions every week, but this one came in with a heartfelt note. And it was from Philip Cullen from Ireland. And he said, please find my attached recording of my song without fear. I'm an artist and therapist from Ireland. And he continues on by saying, I watched with incredulity and horror at the pandemic response from world governments. And so, you know, I get letters like this all the time. Uh, the whole world is is aching right now with, I think, so much pain and and remorse and uncertainty and fear about what the future holds. So we've had several hard-hitting shows in the last few weeks. I haven't even had a music segment. Sometimes I haven't even had a monologue. We have another hard-hitting show. It's just the way the cycle is right now. You're going to love her. On the back side, we have Dr. Kim Biss from uh, uh, from the uh, Tampa region of Florida. She's an obstetrics gynecologist. I wanted to be a very clinical interview and ask her some questions regarding uh, COVID-19, the vaccines, and largely in the setting of obstetrics. And so it's a great interview. I think it's going to be incredibly clinically valuable. So make sure you get on the backside of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Are you trying to lose weight? Have you had COVID-19 recently or have suffered a vaccine injury syndrome? You know, all of these conditions are metabolic, catabolic strains on the body. The body has increased needs for essential micronutrients and minerals. And the GI tract may not be functioning completely normally in terms of absorption. The solution, healthy cell. Healthy Cell has an entire product line using MicroJoe technologies. So these are in liquid gel packs that you simply uh, rip open and a quick squirt and you've got everything you need in terms of nutrients. The product lines are the Immune Super Boost, the uh, Focus in Memory, and my favorite, the REM Sleep Supplement for an ideal night's sleep. Try them out. Go to HealthyCell.com and enter in out loud for a discount on your first purchase. Oh, or go on our platform, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner bar, Healthy Cell, to get your discount on your first boxes of uh, Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. 
America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Well, you're hearing the news about the convergence of influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and now SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, hitting at the same time in some households. Uh, Most of these conditions are mild, but they are bothersome. People have fever, cough, congestion, uh, respiratory symptoms, and one of the best ways to safeguard your home is with the Genesis Fogger. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCL, that is a safe disinfectant. Uh, It is virucidal. It kills the virus in the air and on surfaces. It creates a dry mist. You can use it to sterilize certain rooms, sterilize bathrooms particularly, and I think every household should have it. So go to America Out Loud website, go to the banner bar and click on Genesis Fogger to get a discount on your purchase. And you're gonna need it because the first purchase involves the uh, unit itself, and then you'll get a box of the liquid that's used inside. It's diluted in water, and that's basically the supply. And you're given a, a, a real good number of bottles that'll last you a long time. But go ahead and pick up the discount on the first purchase when you go to our banner bar on America Out Loud, and that's the Genesis Fogger. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, We heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show for the first time somebody who I've wanted to get on the show. She's got a great reputation, Dr. Kim Biss. Kim went to undergraduate at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. She went on to Tufts University in Boston for medical school, a very prestigious medical school. She did uh, one year uh, effectively as a... Um, a general surgery intern, and then uh, did a standard uh, OB-GYN residency in St. Petersburg, Florida, Bayfront Medical Center. Um, and she's been in uh, private practice in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, from that time forward, I would surmise a man was involved in that decision. Um, but uh, Kim has really emerged on the scene as an expert in helping us understand obstetrics and gynecological issues with respect to COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines. Kim, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you. Was I right? Was a man involved? A man meaning a husband? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Um, We both grew up in the Northeast and we were tired of winter and the cold weather. As a matter of fact, it was 60 degrees here today in St. Petersburg. So of course, we're all donning our jackets. Yeah. Well, that's true. They've said that wherever you do your residency is very likely where you're going to stay because things happen. People settle down and 
and they decide. So, Eddie, you know, we have a lot of doctors who listen to this show. And I've always said that all the steps that we take from college to medical school to internship to residency, uh, they're both training steps, but they're also life experiences, right? So you get a chance to live somewhere else and find out, a, you know, if you like a different part of the country. Did you take it that way when you were in your training? Yes, I, we love Florida. I mean, my husband's a fish out of water. We, you know, we live on a canal. He has a boat and um, we just, there's something about, I, I think I probably have that seasonal affect disorder because, you know, in the Northeast, the winters is just six months of gray. And if we very rarely have a day here in Florida where the whole day is cloudy. And I notice when we have those days, I'm very fatigued and not as, you know, chipper. So I enjoy, I enjoy, the only thing I really miss is the fall because um, we don't really have that here, but I do have a cabin up in the North Georgia mountains and that's where I can go to get my fall on. <laughs> well, you know, when I, I did college at Baylor and then medical school at UT Southwestern, I had lived in Texas a long time and I was for sure going to leave Texas for my residency, mainly because I wanted to live somewhere else in the country. I interviewed in the Northeast at the Harvard programs and Hopkins and uh, and then I had one interview out West, one, and that was at University of Washington in Seattle. And I went there on a brilliant day. I was engaged at the time. So my fiance went and we saw Mount Rainier and, and all these wonderful people hiking the mountains and, and Seattle at the time, that was, uh, that was when Starbucks was just a local coffee shop and, and uh, Boeing was the main employer in town. And we had such a great view of Seattle. I said, God, I have to go to Seattle for my residency. And I was lucky enough to go. So I was the first person from Texas, I think, in about five years in medicine or five or 10 years in medicine and went to Seattle, uh, largest medicine and surgery program in the country. And then I went from there. I ended up going to Michigan in rural health uh, for three years uh, to pay back my student loans. And uh, I wasn't, I didn't really have a choice. I was assigned up in Northern Michigan. And then I uh, went to graduate school at University of Michigan and did further cardiology training and what's now the William Beaumont. Uh, Oakland University uh, School of Medicine in Detroit. So I lived around. I returned to Texas for the latter part of my career. And it's gone from there. And like you, I have fallen into this clinical uh, sphere where I'm both interested and um, I feel called to try to help people with COVID-19. So what's been your experience before the vaccines? What's been your experience, let's say, in pregnancy and COVID-19 respiratory illness? So it, it feels like it's been a very long, almost three years now. So it's hard to kind of go back and really capture everything. But I will remember um, in March, as soon as we started the two weeks to slow the spread and things were starting to lock down, I remember that I was the lucky one that was on call that weekend. And as soon as uh, five o'clock hit on that Friday, I got a call from a patient who was, you know, sounded like she had an upper respiratory infection and she was afraid that maybe she had whatever this was that was going around. And I told her to go to the emergency room. And I just remember sitting in my office being so afraid <laughs> because we had no idea what this was. And I was 
possibly going to have to go to the hospital and evaluate the patient and what would I be exposed to and what could I possibly expose my family to, et cetera, et cetera. And she ultimately was evaluated by the emergency room staff and sent home. And I didn't have to deal with anybody really in that situation that weekend. And I don't know really what clicked, but after that weekend, I kind of lost a little bit of the fear. Um, and I just decided that, you know, I went into medicine and I took an oath when I graduated, which sadly is much different than what some of the oaths are now that are recited upon medical school graduation. But I felt like, you know, my job is I'm supposed to help people and I need to put on my big girl pants and stop being afraid and, you know, just move on. And I, I will say during the first year of the pandemic, you know, that year we had uh, maybe 275 deliveries. We're, we're only a two physician uh, practice with one to two. Well, we had two midwives. We have one now one midwife, but, you know, we, prior to COVID, we were ranging anywhere between 25 to 30 deliveries a month. So not a super high number of deliveries, but during that time, we didn't have any patients that ended up on any ventilators. I mean, we had some, we had a COVID unit in our hospital. My hospital is a 400 bed level two trauma center with high risk obstetrics and all the medical specialties are represented. We don't ever have to transfer anybody out. Um, we would have some pregnant patients that would be admitted for observation, but would go home in a day or two. Um, but we, and and then the next year in 2021, on, before you leave 2020, did any of them get treatment? Did they actually have to do any for No, no. And I'll get to that because you, I started listening to a lot of podcasts way early on. Um, and you were one of the people that I fell upon and I actually, uh, gave a little talk because uh, I'm the chief of my medical staff. And I gave a little talk. If you want me to go into that, that was in July of 2021 um, about the fact that we weren't treating these patients early. Uh, but no, there was no treatment. And, you know, people would come to the emergency room. And prior to COVID, if you had a respiratory infection, you never left an emergency room, a primary care physician's office or urgent care with, without at least four prescriptions. Then all of a sudden COVID happens and well, you're not blue, so we're not going to admit you, but we don't have anything to treat this. So go home and eat soup. I mean, that never made sense to me. Um, so no, there was no treatment. It was awful. <laughs> okay. And, but you yourself didn't uh, treat anybody um, in your practice? Or? No, I mean, I some of my gynecology patients, I did treat with either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. But the problem is with the obstetric patients, the way my company is structured, we all share in the medical liability. And my partner was so afraid that if we put somebody on hydroxychloroquine who's pregnant and something bad happens, even though all of our lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients who were pregnant were on hydroxychloroquine and did fine, um, if there were any untoward events that would happen, you know, we could possibly be sued, et cetera, et cetera. So I really couldn't 
treat patients because I wasn't in solo obstetric practice, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But but it sounds like they really didn't need it. They kind of got through. Nobody ended up on the ventilator. And were you testing women coming into L&D just routinely, even if they didn't have symptoms? Yes. Um, Everybody got tested um, and they weren't allowed to, if we, if they thought they had COVID, if the patient called and thought they had COVID, um, none of those patients went to our obstetric triage unit. They instead went to the regular emergency room because that way, if they did rule in for COVID and had to be admitted, they were right there um, to be placed on the unit or, you know, they could have the CT scans or whatever testing that you know, was was normally done for those patients. So they would go, but if somebody were coming in and being admitted for labor, um, they were all tested for COVID and they couldn't be brought into a labor room or if they needed a C-section, they couldn't be brought to the operating room until we had the result of that test. And we were doing initially the PCR test, but then we switched to the rapid antigen test and we were able to get that information back within an hour's time, but it was still a little frustrating because, you know, you had to wait for an hour before, you know, you could do anything. And it never made sense to me because they never tested the, the father, you know, they only tested the patient. A lot of the testing never made sense to me anyway, because I didn't understand why we were testing so many people that didn't have any symptoms but we're not testing now, but I'll tell you, the testing didn't go away at our hospital until September of this year. But what, what were some of the rates that you remember through 2020 in terms of positivity? Like what percent were positive, just asymptomatic? Um, I think in the state of Florida, I want to say it was like um, six to 8%, Yeah, but I, I don't remember. I know five to 15%. It used to vary. We did the same thing. And, and so they weren't sick. They just tested positive and did a variety of different things. And uh, okay. So it sounds like your understanding is the same as mine. There were a few papers suggesting that pregnant women um, actually had less severe outcomes than non-pregnant women. The um, Pinellas paper uh, suggested that. Uh, And rarely in the literature, there were some maternal deaths with COVID-19. It it happened. It was uh, rare. Uh, maternal deaths themselves are are rare, uh, but um, by and large, it sounds like the community's experience was w- what yours was. Now enter the vaccine. So now it's 2021. What were you observing then? So so let me go a little bit into my my medical counsel story. So you're right. There were very few. I've been chief of staff at this hospital now um, since right before the pandemic hit. And if there, if we were having a huge number of maternal bad outcomes or deaths, I would have been made aware of that. I would have known that. It would have been discussed at our meetings. And I can probably count on one hand, thank God, you know, how many deaths we had. Um, but what ended up happening was um, in June of 2021, I was doing a C-section and a resident came to help me and she showed up late for the section and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I just came from the emergency room. I was dealing with a really sick patient. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, it was a 26-week pregnant patient with COVID-19 infection, bilateral saddle emboli. Mm. Um, They couldn't 
oxygenate her. So they had to transfer her across the bay to Tampa General because we still don't have ECMO. So she went to Tampa General to to be placed on ECMO. And we knew a friend of mine's sister worked in the ICU over there. And we found out from her that the patient had died. Mm. Um, My assumption is- She was pregnant. She was 26 weeks pregnant. And my assumption was, you know, they did a they did a C-section probably to salvage the baby. Mm-hmm. But the but the but the kicker of this was this patient had presented to our emergency room a week prior with COVID, and she did not meet any criteria to be admitted, and as per usual, was sent out with no treatment and told to come back when she couldn't breathe, which she did. <laughs> so I was amazed at this story. So two weeks later, we have our med council meeting and I never do this. I usually let our quality guy give the safety minute, but I said, I'm going to give a safety minute. And I had prepared this slideshow. I had a huge picture of you, (laughs) a huge picture of Robert Malone, of Zev Zelenko, may he rest in peace. And I showed a picture of your um, protocol, which I will sadly admit, I know you had published that in the journal, I think the Annal of Internal Medicine or one of those journals, like in the fall of 2020, but I had just become made aware of it. But I showed the early outpatient treatment. I brought up this patient, discussed how she had passed away. And to my amazement, nobody batted an eye. And I said, I find it criminal that we're not treating these patients early. Why are we waiting until they get so sick and they end up in the hospital? And the only one who spoke up was my now vice chief of staff. She's an emergency room physician. And she said, well, you know, we don't in our literature for emergency room medicine, we don't have anything that supports, you know, early treatment of COVID. And then I showed a slide that was all in Hebrew because it was from the Israeli Ministry of Health, because by then, since their, you know, Pfizer's crash test dummy country, they were already starting their boosters. They were getting their third injections of their messenger RNA injections. And I, and this slide clearly showed that it was starting to fail because these people were getting COVID and ending up in the hospital. And one of my other colleagues in the room said, well, I questioned Dr. Biss's data. And fortunately, a friend of mine in the room who's Jewish and reads and speaks Hebrew said, no, she's actually correct. And I said, I'm concerned that we're all going to just sit here and think that these vaccines are the way out of our pandemic. I said, I think we need to figure out how we're going to treat patients for this disease early. I don't think the the vaccines are going to be the answer. So I finished my talk and then the chief nursing officer speaks up and says, well, we're thinking about making vaccines for COVID here mandatory. And I just look around the room because it's almost like nobody heard what I even talked about. Nobody really cared that we had a 26 patient, you know, week patient young in her thirties die. And what ended up happening was the next day, two of the physicians on my medical staff went to the CEO of the hospital and said, I heard about Dr. Biss's 
speech last night. And I feel that not only should she step down as chief of staff, but she should resign from the hospital because she's obviously anti-vaccine. That's all they got out of my talk. And she's dangerous. And doesn't she know that her own American board of OBGYN recommends that she give this to all her pregnant women and yada, yada, yada. And fortunately, there was another physician in the room when they were having this discussion who stuck up for me and basically said, she's a physician. She can have an opinion. It's her meeting and she can talk about whatever she wants. And for some reason, they all fell in love with me even more because my term as chief of staff was supposed to end last year and they signed me up for another two years. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's been... This it's is a been, remarkable story. You know, what what is going on in the minds of these doctors, which uh, suddenly for the words that you said regarding the case, and you've been chief of staff for years, you've discussed all different types of cases. Why is it suddenly in COVID that you should resign from the hospital? I mean, you're right. just discussing the case. Well, I agree. I mean, met. Can you imagine in my specialty, if the doctor who brought up his concerns about thalidomide was censored and sh and shunned from society, we'd still have babies being born with massive birth defects. I mean, this is crazy to me that people, medicine needs to be discussed. There's different ways to skin a cat with, you know, you have to individualize care. And I mean, you can follow algorithms to a point, but not all patients are going to respond the same way. And I, and I even brought up in that talk, I was telling you about, you know, back when we had charts and, you know, you had a patient in the hospital and you, you know, a patient was admitted with some weird Albert condition you've never seen before. And you would call your friend in another state and they would say, oh, well, there's this uh, article in such and such journal that talks about this. And you would print the article and you would put it on the chart and you would reference in your note, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for this patient because this is what so-and-so is doing, you know, in this other country or whatever. And it would be fine. <laughs> Not with COVID. I mean, it's 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 incredible to me. It's incredible. So so just discussing a case and mentioning this notion of treatment in 2021 struck this visceral reaction where you should be stripped off this committee, uh, be thrown out of the hospital after years of high quality practice. And then take us from there. What happens later on in 2021 and into 2022? So I don't remember exactly the month that this patient was admitted, but I know it had to be before November of 2021 because I fell and broke my arm and was out of work for two months in November. <laughs> so I know that this patient was admitted prior to that and must have been after the spring, because it was after we were starting, uh, well, not we, I don't include myself in that, but after the pregnant patients were starting to get the vaccine, because I remember when this patient was in the hospital, there were so many notes reflecting the fact that she hadn't been vaccinated. Um, this was a 22-year-old, um, sadly, morbidly obese, um, Black female who was 
32 weeks pregnant and she was our patient and she had been uh, dealing with COVID for about a week before she presented to the hospital and she did end up, you know, meeting criteria to be admitted. Now, of course, she's beyond the viremia phase, but she gets admitted. They put her on nasal cannula O2. They start the remdesivir and they put her on, I don't know, Decadron. And um, they admit her to, you know, an observation ward. By that point, I don't, we didn't have the COVID unit anymore. They were putting people oh, on. on. Is, is remdesivir safe in pregnancy? It's emergency use authorized. Uh, what's your view as a as an obstetrician? Well, honestly, I don't think it's safe in anybody. I mean, the Gilead study was not stellar with regards to the outcomes of I mean, patients. By that, that time, the, the WHO is saying, do not administer remdesivir in November Correct. 2020. But so that's the hospital and those doctors administer remdesivir against yes. the World Health Organization uh, yes. guidance on this. And but did they give hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, which is safe in pregnancy? Oh, God, no, no. As a matter of fact, I don't remember, but there was a patient in an Ohio hospital uh, that got a judge to order that they be given ivermectin. And when that happened, our hospital system sent out an email to everybody giving us talking points on how we're supposed to convince our patients that they don't need ivermectin. I mean, it was amazing. So no, that was never an option at my hospital. You know, patients can't understand this about why there would be this proactive attempt to not use any ivermectin, but yet if a patient had scabies, you'd use ivermectin. If a patient had lupus or young African-American with lupus, for instance, you'd use um, hydroxychloroquine. There'd yeah. be no, no problems there. Um, well, well, I even joked with a perinatologist once because I said, you know, why is hydroxychloroquine so dangerous for COVID when we give the same dose to all our pregnant patients that have lupus and they're on it for the whole pregnancy. And she laughed, you know, cause they get it, but you know, they can't, they can't say otherwise. Okay. So what happens to this patient now? So she continues to not get better. And I had called a high risk obstetrician because I felt like I needed to deliver the baby so she would have more lung capacity. Uh, and she agreed. So um, I was trying to make the patient better by delivering the baby. But 12 hours after the delivery, we did the delivery under spinal. The anesthesiologist didn't want her to go on a ventilator because she was afraid if we got her on the ventilator, we wouldn't be able to extubate her. So we did the surgery under spinal, everything went fine, and she was good for about eight hours, and then she crashed, and, you know, she her oxygen levels dropped, and she had to be, you know, placed on the ventilator and put in the intensive care unit. Mm. So the baby was okay? The baby went to the NICU and stayed there for about a month and went home and was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, the patient was 22 upon admission and celebrated her 23rd birthday in the intensive care unit. <laughs> um, 
she was on the ventilator for probably about six days. As you can imagine, uh, nephrology was consulted on her because she was on remdesivir and um, Mm. decided to give her Lasix. And she diuresed six liters of fluid and they were then able to extubate her. Um, And she left the hospital like three days later. So she survived um, even though she ended up on the ventilator and received the remdesivir. Um, But she was the sickest patient out of the last three years that we've had during this whole pandemic. And we were all told in the beginning when they were talking about these vaccines that, you know, pregnant women are not going to do well if they get COVID, just like we're told the same thing with this, with influenza. And I will tell you in 24 years of private practice, and then including my four years of residency, I've never had a pregnant woman die of the seasonal flu. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but, you know, we're told the same thing. We have to vaccinate all our pregnant women for the flu because if they get the flu, they're going to die. You know, it's kind of the same mantra. Well, for can, COVID. You, can, can you clear something up? It, it, you know, is pregnancy an immune deficient state? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there is a little bit of suppression of the immunity because uh, the body, if there weren't, the body could possibly... Uh, get rid of the pregnancy. Um, But, uh, and that was an argument in the beginning for women to be in the front of the line for these vaccines with the elderly patients, because, you know, they're pregnant and they're immune compromised. But, but isn't it true that, you know, when the baby passes through the birth canal, there's a tremendous exposure to bacteria. Um, Many times there's feces and the it always seems to me it's a, it's a pretty robust state. I mean, you, you, you know, God's creation, particularly in the in the pregnancy state, w- women are pretty robust. And it's always been my view on that. I've been impressed with some of the papers showing, again, just like what you're reporting in your experience, that pregnant women, honestly, you know, do better than non-pregnant women. Now, what about giving brand new investigational genetic vaccines to pregnant women. When it wasn't done in the randomized trials, it was an exclusion for Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and Novavax. It was an exclusion. You could not give a pregnant woman a vaccine in a randomized trial. And then in the first week of the vaccine program, December 2020, thousands of women took the vaccines. What's your reaction? You know, I find it amazing because we have women who won't even take an aspirin when they're pregnant, they will take no medications, even if you recommend it, because they're so afraid that they're going to harm the baby. But they'll be the same person that got two, three or four of these experimental injections. It's baffling. It's baffling. And I, um, when they start, I'm sorry, that's the women's choice. But what about doctors? If there was a brand new diabetes pill or blood pressure pill, and there was no information in pregnant women at all, would you just prescribe it just just because it's brand new? No. No. I mean, I, I wouldn't either. I'm a, I'm a consultant on pregnant women. Uh, in fact, we have pregnancy categories, A, B, C, X. And wouldn't you agree that if the vaccines are genetic, 
They've never been tested in pregnant women. There's no triadogenicity studies. Uh, there's, there, there've been no studies on fetal loss. And they installed the genetic code for the Wuhan spike protein, which is known to be lethal. It's the lethal part of the virus. It, they have a dangerous mechanism of action. They have no assurances that they're safe in pregnant women. Isn't that pregnancy category X? It should be. It should be. And, you know, I even, I had a discussion regarding this with one of the perinatologists. My office is right next door to a perinatology practice. And I brought up to him that article that came out in April in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they quoted a pregnancy loss rate of 15%, which is congruent with what we normally expect. The normal uh, rate of miscarriage is 10 to 15%. And I even checked in my obstetric textbook because I wanted to be sure, you know, had they've changed so many things now that we're supposed to believe were always true. But that was the same percentage quoted back in the early 90s when I was in, in training. But that was fraudulently stated because when you actually looked at the data, you, the denominator they used was incorrect because you can't take the whole cohort of patients and use that as the denominator because if somebody has a loss at 26 weeks, that's not a miscarriage, that's a stillbirth. So when they actually used the right denominator, the and this was from the VSAFE data, um, the miscarriage rate was 80%. Mm -hmm. And I discussed that with the perinatologist and he he basically said, well, I got the shot and I'm still alive. So whatever. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. How, how do people do you think that's part of it that people personalize it? They said, listen, I did it. I took a risk. I'm OK. Everybody else should take it, too. Do you think that psychology is is overriding the, the doctor's best judgment? I really think it is, because I think most people I mean, unlike, you know, Steve Kirsch and Robert Malone, who are, you know, speaking out against these injections, but they themselves have been vaccinated. I think there's very few people that can honestly sit here and think, wow, you know, what did I do to myself? Or what did I do to myself and my family? Or what did I do to myself and my patients, you know, recommending this? I just don't think psychologically they can handle that. I tend that's, to agree. That's my thought. It's been very rare that someone comes out and expresses uh, regret. You know, on November 29th coming up, Asim Malhotra, UK cardiologist, young man, uh, he's been communicating with me. Uh, he promoted the vaccines. He took it himself. He was on Good Morning Britain. He was telling everybody should get a vaccine. His dad takes the vaccine and dies. And his dad has uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And he becomes convinced his dad died because of the vaccine. He communicates with me. He says he needs to do his own analyses and publish it. And, you know, he really wrestles with this. And he, he does it. He actually publishes two papers concluding the vaccines are not safe. And then he comes out and he says, listen, we got to stop. I think it's a rare person that has that degree of intellectual honesty and courage to do that. I think people right now, uh, they know these vaccines don't leave the body. The, the genetic material doesn't leave the body. It's stuck there. The spike protein is layering on. And they're absolutely gripped in, in fear and terror right now. You know, um, Tampa Bay Bucks, since you live there, I got to mention it, their former coach, Bruce Arians. 
in 2021 is telling everybody that the Tampa Bay Bucks uh, have all taken the vaccine, all the staff, all the coaches. He, he's saying this is the only way to go. He's very pro-vaccine. We found out in October he's in the hospital for four days with myocarditis. Imagine that. Yeah, and you know, doesn't acknowledge. Darn, I was wrong. You know, we had Deion Sanders, a great player for the Dallas Cowboys, pushing the vaccines, pushing the vaccines, and everybody, uh, you know, videos. He's taking the vaccine. He's just so obvious. You know, he's really pro-vaccine. He gets blood clots. They shoot to his lower extremities. They chopping off toes, amputations. He's in a wheelchair. And then he makes a docu-series on this and how he comes back to the sidelines and coaching this team. Never mentions the vaccines. He's got a family history of blood clotting disorder, but he never mentions the vaccines as the obvious trigger for blood clotting. The FDA says they cause blood clotting. He's a young man. Everything else is fine. He should not be getting blood clots. And there seems to be this mental block where people can't come to their own realization that the blood clot is in fact causing these problems. Do you, do you see that being the case in your circles? You know, I do. I, and I think part of that is because, you know, the, the, the news, the mainstream news is constantly spewing how these are safe and effective doctors and hospitals are not saying to the patients, well, this could possibly be a reaction to the vaccine. Um, I have a similar kind of a similar situation. I, I saw a patient last December, um, 2021. Uh, she was halfway through her pregnancy at that point. She had, um, I want to say protein S deficiency. So she was on Lovenox and she had received two Pfizer injections earlier in the year. And she was told by a perinatologist and my partner as well to get the booster. And I'm and I'm reading her chart the day before I was going to see her because I always go through my charts ahead of time and make notes. And I was just flabbergasted that somebody who has a thrombophilia and we know these shots cause clots for one, a pregnant woman's already at increased risk for blood clotting. And we are we were already starting to see that these shots weren't really as effective as they said. So why are we telling her to get a booster? And at that time in Florida, we had the option to give our patients monoclonal antibodies if they did get COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just amazed. So when I saw her the next day, I very nicely, you know, and I was meeting her for the first time. I very nicely said, you know, listen, um, I know you've gotten three of these injections so far. I said, you know, Please don't get any more if, if they're recommended to you, because my concern is that, you know, you might develop blood clotting. And then she got, she was a little anxious and she said, well, what did I do to my baby? I said, you didn't do anything to your baby. I'm just mm -hmm. saying you know, for the future. Well, she left the office and then she called back and spoke to my partner and she said she never wanted to see me again because I obviously didn't know what I was talking about. And you know, two other doctors told her to get the shots and, you know, she just was not very comfortable with me. So I never saw her again. <laughs> mm -hmm. That certainly can happen. You know, the CDC reports right now that only 10% of people are taking any more vaccines and 90% of people are, are done with this. So it's running about 90, 10. Uh, what do you estimate right now of a new patient who's newly pregnant and 
in your practice, let's say first trimester patients seeking, you know, established care with an obstetrician, what percent of patients do you think are vaccinated? So interesting, you should ask, I was kind of looking at that data today. Um, you know, the vaccination rate in the state of Florida for at least people having the first two injections is somewhere between 65 and 70%. And then it starts to go down when you start adding the three boosters. I would say we have about 30% of our obstetric patients have had at least two injections. Some have had three. Uh, very rare are there people that have had more than that. But it's not a low number. Wow. Wow. Now, what have you seen in terms of obstetrical complications? You mentioned the pulmonary embolism case. Have there been cases of... Um, placental hemorrhage or thrombosis or uh, cases of fetal hemorrhage or things that just don't seem usual to you? So I don't have data in front of me with hardcore numbers, but my experience has been that our preeclampsia rates and our gestational hypertension rates are through the roof. I mean, my midwife even commented last month, like, who doesn't have preeclampsia anymore? Just seems like, which would be, you know, that's a placental induced disease. Um, so there's inflammation at the level of the placenta, which is why, you know, preeclampsia occurs. Um, oligohydramnios or lo low fluid around the baby, low amniotic fluid that has increased as well. And that's caused us to deliver a lot of patients and deliver them, I mean, admit them and deliver them early, um, you know, about 35, 36 weeks. That again is reflecting the health of the placenta. Um, postpartum hemorrhages uh, have increased. And I don't, know exactly why that is, but I did attend an FLCCC conference last month and um, the physician, I don't remember his name, but he's from Brazil and he's an endocrinologist and he uh, is also a sports medicine physician. And he's mentioned something about the effect of the spike protein in muscle, which in your case would be cardiac but maybe there's something to do with the spike protein in the lower uterine segment uh, in the musculature that's allowing these women to have these bleeds because a lot of the time they're happening in a patient you wouldn't anticipate would be at risk for that. But are there any metrics, Kim, that you could look at like transfusion rates of in the L&D where there's been a, a, a secular trend increase in transfusion rates? You know, maybe I asked my unit director two months ago if she could give me some data on our delivery numbers and our stillbirth rates. Um, and I got the answer that, well, we've switched systems uh, and the computer and they don't read the EMR. So we would have to do this manually because, you know, if you Google like, birth rates or death rates, uh, fetal death rates in the United States, the last entry is from 2020. Hmm. Now, every labor and delivery unit, you know, before the electronic record would have a log book where every person that walked in on that floor and got admitted for labor 
you would, you know, note the type of delivery they had, whether it was vag or C-section, you know, if there was a stillbirth, if a baby went to the NICU, you know, all these, you could, anybody could walk on that floor and look in that log and know what happened. Well, they don't have that log anymore and they're not really keeping track uh, in the electronic record. I mean, unless you have a whistleblower nurse that comes out like we had out of California and says, well, this is what's happening. You cannot find out what the stillbirth rate has been in our country since the pandemic started. And I think that's by design. <laughs> Boy, that's uh, that's shocking. I haven't heard that. Now, let me ask you, um, for morbidity and mortality conference, you're a chief of staff. There, there's a quality assurance if someone dies mother or baby, there has to be a morbidity and mortality review. Uh, also should be for near misses. For these morbidity and mortality cases that you're aware of, do they give the vaccine status of the mother? Well, in my patient that I discussed, um, she didn't pass away, but they were very, um, you know, they were shaming her because she wasn't vaccinated. They stopped really talking about vaccine status all of a sudden. It was like a switch was flipped. And then they, because probably more patients were being admitted with COVID that had actually been vaccinated, but they don't bring that up anymore. No, but how about, uh, let's say you deliver a baby and there's a fetal demise and the baby is dead and there's, there's an M&M review. Uh, do they give the vaccine status of the mother by routine? Or let's say there's a life-threatening hemorrhage, a runaway hemorrhage after delivery of the placenta. Um, do they, is it part of routine M&M to note the COVID-19 vaccine status? I don't believe so. And, I don't believe so. and I've heard this from other NICUs and other obstetrics units that there's no mention of the COVID-19 vaccine status as part of an M&M, yet this is a brand new exposure. It's a brand new uh, biotechnology and it should be mentioned in every case. Well, you know, the other thing that was really mind baffling to me in the beginning was the fact that the pathologists decided way early on in this pandemic that they weren't going to do any autopsies, I guess, because of the fear of possibly contracting COVID-19 while you're doing an autopsy. But I just found that amazing because you're, you're determining all these people are dying from COVID, but you're not determining that by autopsy. I know. Fortunately, there have been some courageous autopsy studies done um, by, there's, there's not one by the NIH uh, and, uh, and then the Italians that um, have, have been helpful in general adult cases. I'm not aware of any in obstetrics or L&D cases. In the last minute or so we have left, I want you to comment on a paper published by Allison Edelman. And the title of the paper is Association Between Menstrual Cycle Length and COVID-19 Vaccination, a Global Retrospective Cohort Study of Prospectively Collected Data. And this is in BMJ Medicine. And what they found is COVID-19 vaccines do lengthen the cycle or the time between periods. Uh, by a couple days or so. And have you observed this in your practice and does it have any implications? You know, I have. I've I've seen a lot of postmenopausal patients that have had a lot of problems with bleeding that 
uh, can't be explained. They're not on hormones. They don't have any structural reason for the bleeding. And um, ultimately on a few of these patients, I've had to do hysterectomies because no medical management would work. Um, it, as far as in the reproductive age women, uh, I have had a few patients uh, who all of a sudden their menses have gone completely away. And I, I, I can't explain that uh, by, for any reason when we do blood work evaluation for the usual causes for that. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, that if your menstrual periods are messed up, that's going to interfere with fertility. Is uh, that predictable if something messes up and it looks like it's pretty consistent, you know, there was four to 6,000 papers in that uh, patients in that study I mentioned, and it consistently lengthens or changes the menstrual, the natural menstrual cycle. Is that predictable that it's going to have some influence on fecundity? Well, I mean, it has to, I mean, that's, you know, your menstrual, your menstrual cycle is determining, you know, whether or not you're ovulating, if you're not making an egg, you're not, you know, obviously not going to conceive. But the other thing is, I mean, the menstrual cycle is a reflection of the womb lining that's getting ready to nourish a pregnancy and it gets shed if you're not pregnant. So if there's a problem with the cycle or, you know, the, the length in between bleeding cycle day one and cycle day one is lengthened, then that may suggest that there's a problem at the level of the endometrium. Wow. So many implications. This has been one of the most helpful interviews, I think, for our our listeners, particularly there's a lot of women who listen to McCullough Report worldwide. Kim, we're out of time. Uh, we're going to have to have you come back for more. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you for having me. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.